So uh, I have been waiting for today for six months, and it has showed up, and not because it's opening dove season this weekend. It's even better than that, because today we're going to start our journey through the book of Romans. We're going to take a whole stinking year and walk through the book of Romans together. Now, you might be asking yourself, self, why would we take so much time and dedicate so much of the year to studying one book? One book. Now, let me be honest. Romans is the Mount Everest in the scriptures. It is probably some of the most theologically difficult, strong, and rich scriptures that we have in the whole Bible. Um, many scholars regard it as the Magna Carta of the Bible. For 2,000 years, they have said that if only two books in the whole Bible survived, what would those two books be? What would those two books be that we would need to not only pass down the Christian faith, but that the Christian faith would still thrive? And those two books are John, which we went through, and the book of Romans, because Romans is powerful. In fact, Martin Luther said it was one of the most important new uh, books in all of the New Testament. It's because we get, it's where we get our idea that it's not about how good you are and how you have to measure up but it's about the goodness of God and what he says and what his life, death, and resurrection have achieved on your behalf. It's what Paul will come to explain to us, that that is justification by faith. And it is the doctrine which Luther said uh, in which the church rises and falls. So it's not any small thing what Luther said. John, Our boy John Wesley was reading the book of Romans and he came face to face with the risen Lord Jesus Christ and started his relationship with Christ. And it said, uh, history recounts that his heart was strangely warmed as he read through the book of Romans. On top of that, Romans has been um, the book uh, throughout the course of history that has launched and turned every major revival that we have ever experienced, including the Protestant Reformation. And so it is massive and as big and as complex as Romans is, you have to understand this too. You have to understand as we go through Romans, you're going to get to see what the gospel with skin on looks like. It's the place where you will come face to face with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. No clearer picture in all of the Bible do we get at the life and what the gospel of Jesus actually means than in the book of Romans. So much of what we take for granted just about what faith is and our understanding about what it means to be a follower of Christ is found directly in the book of Romans. It is that powerful. And so what we've done is we have created just a couple of resources we wanted to let you know about. And so if you have your phones with you, you can get on your phones and uh, if you go to the, our website at connect2riverside.com, you can add it to your mobile home screen. And on it, you'll find some study questions. So as we are rolling through things on Sunday mornings, there will also be some deeper question, uh, some questions to help you dive deeper with what we're talking about. As well as, how many of y'all have the Bible app on your phone? Does anyone have the Bible app on your phone? Yeah, it's a great, really easy to use app. If you open the Bible app on your phone, and you click the three little lines and then click on event, you will see Riverside's name, our community name, pop right up. And what is on there is we'll include all of the scripture references, the slides, my talking points um, will be up on there so that you can follow along. And we'll even have a couple of spaces on there for you to take notes and then you can send it to yourself to be thoughtful about 
tracking with this. But I want to I say all that to say I want to make you a promise. I want to make you a, a, a big promise this morning. If you track with us, if you jump in, if you will commit this year to track and follow along with us through the book of Romans, I can guarantee you that at the end of the school year, you will not be the same person. It is not possible to wrestle, to walk through, to dive into the book of Romans like we're going to do and shake every apple off every uh, branch and not be a change-marked person because of it. It is that significant. And that's the commitment that I'm making to you this morning, that if you will track with us, your life will look radically different by the end of the year. And I know that sounds big, but it is utterly true. And I want that for me, and I want that for you as a community. And so please take advantage of those resources. A couple of things as, as kind of before we jump into the book of Romans. First thing that you need to know is that the book where a lot of times Christians, uh, we miss the boat is we think that the, the, the book, the book, the letter of Romans was written to outsiders, but that is not true. Paul is writing this to believers. This is a in-house discussion, if you will. Now you might be asking, why is that important? Uh, because as you will see next week and in a couple uh, more Sundays down the road, Paul has some really hard words for the church some very difficult things that he's going to address with them. But, and it's important that we remember that this is a family discussion, that this is a family discussion, that this is something that we are doing as a family, sitting around the dinner table, having hard conversations about what it means um, to be a person that follows in the footsteps of Jesus. You also need to know why that is super important is because oftentimes whenever we talk about the gospel message and what that is, we tend to think of that as something that is for unbelievers or people outside of the church. And what you're going to see this morning and all throughout the semester is that Paul is going to argue that the gospel is not just a diving board into the Christian faith, but that uh, the gospel is actually the whole swimming pool. It's the whole think stinking thing. You might think of it like a well. If you have a well and you want the best water from that well, you certainly don't dig the well out. It's just going to get more polluted. What you do then is you dig down and you dig deep and you go for the roots. You go deep with it. And Paul is going to argue and say that's what the Christian faith is like. That in the gospel message, you will find every resource that you need not only to grow in your relationship with Christ, but you will find everything you need to thrive and to come alive. And so Paul invites us to return to the gospel and to go deep. Paul is a church, Paul is a church planter at heart. He's planted churches all over the region. Uh, and then he, what he does is, is he pens these letters to these different churches. And so that's where we get a lot of our um, books and our Bibles. These are letters that Paul wrote to churches that he helped start. In fact, he wrote about uh, half of the New Testament. What's interesting about the book of Romans is Paul never visited this church. It's a church that he did not start, and yet he pins this letter to them. And he writes this letter to them because there is a problem. There's, a, there's issues going on in the church. I know, shocker, that that doesn't have, that happens. But uh, what is brilliant about Paul, y'all, this is, he's remarkable. He's one of the greatest theologians that the world has ever known. In fact, his argument is so beautiful and locked tight that did you know that when Harvard first opened up their law school, 
they studied the book of Romans, not for the message, but for the argument that Paul makes. Paul is so brilliant and so um, concise that Harvard Law School used the Bible as a textbook to study how to make an argument and how to persuade people, how to show people what, uh, what you're trying to convince them. And Paul is brilliant, I mean, just utterly brilliant. And so he's writing to uh, the church at Rome, and they have a problem. You see, uh, there are Jewish Christians in this church, and then there are Gentile Christians in this church. Gentile meaning anybody that's not Jewish. Um, and so what has happened is um, the Jews and the Gentiles have all these differences between them. They have different cultural practices, different political kind of ambitions. They have uh, different uh, food uh, restrictions. And so uh, to make things even worse, the Emperor Claudius at this time, about five years before the book of Romans was written, kicks all of the Jews out of Rome. And at that time, what happens at the church at Rome the Gentiles naturally assume the leadership of that church. And so when right before this is written, Claudius lifts the ban for the Jews, and so the Jewish Christians come back home, and all breaks out. It's like this. Mom, Dad, let's pretend you go on vacation for five years, and you leave the kids in charge. You come back, and things are going to look really different. It's going to feel really different. Things are going to be really, like, complicated. Yeah, that's right. I'm serious. I, I mean, gosh dang. I, I mean, I pick my kids up from school. I'm like, what has happened to my, and that's only for a day. Uh, but uh, Paul is writing to address this conflict and division in the church. And what you're going to see, what I want you to see this morning, is that every reason that we have to divide ourselves, the gospel has reason to unite us. And you will see as Paul argues, that every racial divide, every uh, socioeconomical divide, every um, sexual orientation divide, everything that seeks to def divide us is canceled out under the gospel. The gospel creates a new reality and way for us to be united in love and live together in perfect unity. What a timely message for us. This, this, I almost said gospel, this book was not written just thousands of years ago. It could be written to us today. And I think that it is. And so it's going to be a powerful time for us to jump and explore just the implications of what the gospel means. And so um, if you're visiting with us this morning, uh, we're so glad you are here. One of the strange, quirky things that we do here at Riverside is we say what we call the Shema, which simply means to hear or to listen. Uh, the Shema is an ancient declaration that's found in the Older Testament as well in the New Newer Testament. When some of Jesus, uh, those people that were following Jesus, ask him what the greatest commandment was, he says, part of the Shema. And so we say the Shema on Sunday mornings as a way to help us receive God's words. We say just the first two lines in Hebrew because that's the language that Jesus would have known it in. Another fun tradition that we have is we also raise a pinky up. And that's because all throughout the Older Testament, uh, uh, the scriptures say things like the hand of God or the finger of God. And that was a euphemism to talk about the power and authority of God's people. 
And so we raise a pinky because we need to be reminded of that. We need to claim that for ourselves, that there's enough power in God's smallest finger to transform uh, not only the world, but your very life. I like to say, because we need to be reminded that God is not in the business of taking bad people and making them good. He's in the business of taking dead things and bringing them to life. And I need to be reminded of that. And so would you please stand as we say the Shema together this morning and prepare, excuse me, prepare ourselves to receive God's words. Let's say the Shema. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Kav, hear O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. And so God, our prayer is always that as we read your words, God, may it read us. That the deeper we go, God, the richer we find. God, may we shake every branch. May we find every nugget in your word, God. May we see things that we've never seen before so that we can do things we've never done before. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Grab a seat, friends. So good. Okay. So uh, let's talk a little bit about who Paul was, all right? So if you have your Bibles, you can go over to Romans chapter 1. Verse 1 is where we're going to be jumping in. It's also on the Bible app. You can follow right along. So Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Here we go. This letter is from Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, chosen by God to be an apostle and sent out to preach the good news. And so right off the bat, um, Paul identifies himself as a Pharisee, which is this hyper-religious group um, back in early first century. And so this group would have been uh, revered in the community, highly sought, off, sought after, very influential. And Paul even goes on in the book of Philippians to say that he was not only a Pharisee, but he is a Pharisee among Pharisees. Or you might think of it like you have the Navy, then you have the Navy SEALs, and then you have SEAL Team 6, which is like the elite of the elite. That's who Paul is. He is the elite of the elite authority on the scripture at the time. And so, in fact, uh, Paul would have had the Torah or the first five books of the Older Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, memorized word for word in multiple languages. He was an incredibly incredibly um, impressive man that his, whose theological mind um, was like nothing the world had ever seen before. We know that he studied under a man named Gamaliel, and uh, that probably means nothing to you. Uh, but if, I, if you were a, a physicist and I ask you, well, who did you study under? Who was your teacher? And you said, Einstein, we would say, holy cow, that's a big deal. Same thing. Paul has the pedigree of pedigrees. Um, and what is fascinating about Paul is his pursuit of knowledge um, was not just about understanding. His heart was not only to learn and to, um, to get it in his head, but he wanted to be good at keeping the law, which led him to some really pretty profound statements. In another book, Paul says, if anybody thinks they're good at keeping the law, I was better than them. I was elite. I was SEAL Team 6. And it was out of this great zeal and passion at, for obedience and the law um, that, led, that led Paul to be 
really good at being religious. It led Paul to be really good at being religious, which actually led him to a really bad place. In fact, um, what we know of Paul is Paul was a persecutor of Christians. We may not find that, uh, we may not say that's a good thing, um, but in Paul's eyes, that was a good thing. He was so faithful that he was willing to do anything for obedience and being good at keeping the law to the point where we know, uh, even in the book of Acts, that he does things, he takes it so far that he actually kills Christians. That's who Paul is. And so part of Paul's dilemma then is he becomes so good at being religious, it's taken him to a really dark, horrible, gross place because that's what being religious will do to us. Being religious then brings out the worst in us. It brings out pride. It brings out prejudice, judgmentalism, the spirit of competition, uh, feeling like you always have to be better than somebody else. And if I can just say this real boldly and honestly this morning, that's why religious people are the worst. <laughs> Amen? You know anybody, or you know any religious people that are so good at following the law that they've missed the point? Do you know what pushes back against this? The gospel. The gospel of Jesus pushes back about this. Because if being religious is about, you got to do more, just a little bit more, and then I'll accept you. You got to keep the standard. You got to achieve. You got to keep up the appearance. The gospel, on the other hand, would come along and say, it's not about you and what you've done or what you've achieved, but it's about the work of Christ and what the work of Christ has achieved on your behalf. And that is a very fundamental, different place that we start. Very, very different. And Paul, still in verse 1, says this. This letter is from Paul, a slave. Now, think about who Paul is. He was the elite of the elite Pharisees, and now you see himself calling himself a slave? What does the gospel do? What should the gospel produce in us? Being religious is about elevating yourself over other people for position and prominence. But when the gospel gets a hold of you, what do we see in Paul? It fundamentally, you fundamentally identify yourself in a different way and you see yourself not as somebody up here, but you see, that is my kids in the back, just so you know, <laughs> so that you don't see yourself up here, but you see yourself as a servant to all. And Paul says that he is a slave, the lowest of the low. And you see, that's what the gospel of grace actually produces inside of you or what should be produced inside of you. It's not a pursuit of elevating yourself, but it's actually a reorientation of your life where now you see yourself as a servant, generous, humble, ready to say, that one belongs to me. I can meet that need. That one is mine. Formally, when Paul ran across somebody that maybe had wronged him, he would pay them back with vengeance. When somebody was in need, Paul would say, that's my stuff. Because that's what religion, being religious does. 
It's all about protecting insecurity. But when the gospel gets a hold of you, when the gospel got a hold of Paul, he's able to say things like this. Oh man, when I was at my worst, God just kept loving me. So I know you've wronged me. And I got what I didn't deserve. So I'm gonna give you the same thing, what you didn't deserve. The gospel fundamentally changes the way that you understand your position in this world. You see that even in uh, Paul's name. Before this, maybe some of you are familiar uh, with the story of uh, Paul's history. And he, his, uh, the name he was going by was Saul. Yeah, his name was Saul, which was probably a reference to one of the Old, older Testament kings that, as Scripture tells us, stood head and shoulders above everybody else. And so Paul, or so Saul, was named after this uh, great leader that squished uh, the Israelites in the Older Testament. And yet when he comes face to face with the gospel, do you know what happens? He gets knocked off his high horse, literally, and he starts to go by a new name. Do you know what his name in uh, Paul means in Latin? Little. How powerful is that? How great is that? That before the gospel, he goes by Paul the Great, and now that the gospel gets a hold of him, it's Paul the Small. He understands his place in life so fundamentally different that it changes his identity, changes how he sees himself, and changes how he walks in this world. It's, it's beautiful. Paul is unbelievably uh, uh, transformed by the gospel message. Look, listen to what it says next, still in verse 1. It says, chosen by God to be an apostle and sent out to preach the good news. Formerly, Paul was out making a name for himself by trying to be a good person and follow the law. And now Paul understands that his place in life is not about him. It's not his name on the line. It's not him that he wants to make great, but it's the message of the cross and of the gospel itself. How powerful is that? When we get so transformed by the gospel that we think, it's really not about me anyways. It's about him. It's what we talked about a couple of weeks ago. It's, it's not in our obedience and achievements that Christ is made perfect, but it's in our uh, authenticity and in our uh, faithfulness that Christ, the love of Christ gets on display in our life. There's an um, early, uh, in the 1950s, there's a missionary named Jim Elliott has this beautiful quote, and listen to what he says about this, which I think would have echoed the words of Paul. It says this, uh, we Christians are just a bunch of nobodies pointing to a really big somebody that wants to save everybody. And I'm like, man, I like that. Isn't that good? We Christians are just a bunch of nobodies pointing to a really big somebody that wants to save everybody. And I think that's a, exactly what you see in the life of Paul. His, it was not about him, but it was about pointing to the one that he actually hoped in. And so here's what I want you to consider just this morning as we're jumping into it. Has that transformation happened in you? Do you see who Paul was? He was the worst of the worst. He was horrible. He murdered Christians. He was directly responsible for murder. And yet the gospel got a hold of him in such a way that it transformed his life and he even starts to go by a new name because of the power of the transformation that has happened inside of him. Has that happened to you? Can you look back and say, 
man, that hinky bun a few years back, man, he was an idiot. <laughs> he, he did, he's not even the same guy anymore. Like, can you look back at the last 10 years, the last 20 years, the last year and say, man, I have grown so much in my relationship with Christ that I'm literally not the same person anymore. Because that's the invitation of the gospel. That's what Paul was able to say. He experienced radical, radical transformation, not just in his mind, but all throughout and even in his identity, the way that he saw himself. And that is an invitation that's real for us. Because, y'all, that's normal. That's normal. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ, that when we look back, that we don't even recognize that person anymore. That Christ has got a hold of your heart so much that you're beginning to look more and more and more like him. And it's a question I think that's worth us considering this morning. Is that true for you? Have you let the gospel just work its way down in you so much? Have you gone to the well and gone deep? Because that's the invitation of Paul. That's what he understands the gospel to be. That's verse 1. 432 more verses to go in the book of Romans. Lord help us. I don't know how we're going to get through it, y'all. It is that, it is that good. But So if you're following along, we're actually going to skip a couple of verses because he's just kind of introducing it himself. Um, so we're going to jump down to verse 14, and we're going to read uh, verse 14 through 17 as we kind of wrap it up this morning. Let me say this. Excuse me. It says this. For I have a great sense of obligation to, for, to people in both the civilized world and the rest of the world, to the educated and to the uneducated. So I am eager to come to you in Rome and to preach the good news. For I am not ashamed of the good news about Jesus Christ. Just pause. Do you know why he says he is not ashamed of the good news of Jesus Christ? Y'all, because the gospel is offensive. It's really, you know that, that, that the gospel's pretty dang offensive because the gospel reveals to us that apart from Jesus, I'm not okay. My life is a mess. I will make a mess of not only my life, but everyone in my world. The gospel shows us just apart from Christ, how really bad off we actually are. And that's an offensive thing for us to consider that apart from, from Christ, we are not okay. Okay. For I'm not ashamed of the, and we'll jump into this next week real specifically. For I'm not ashamed of the good news about Christ. It is the power at God at work, saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentiles. The good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. This is accomplished from start to finish. As the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person, um, a person has life. So a couple of times, whatever version you're reading, you're going to see this word pop up, the good news. Or if you're reading or tracking along uh, in the NIV, it's going to say the gospel. Um, and what you need to uh, understand about what that specifically is, Paul is borrowing a very common word at the time. In fact, in the first century, there would have been lots of gospels floating around. Um, simply put, a gospel Whenever a king would come to uh, a city or a town or an area and he won a great battle or won a great victory, he would send out what he would call the gospel. And that gospel would be a letter written to all of the people that are in that area that would, that would say 
This is a conquered king. The war is over. My peace, my new kingdom, my security is now at hand. So whenever you see the word uh, in the book of Romans where it says gospel or the good news, you need to think of it as a king announcing a victory. A couple things. The gospel then is not an invitation to come and fight. It's an announcement that the war is already over. That the kingdom is already established. This is very important for us to to sit in. That this is not an invitation to come and fight. The work of Christ is complete. It's, It's an announcement that we get to live in a new kingdom. That this victory of sin, that Christ's victory over sin, death, condemnation has forever been dealt with on the cross of Christ. And you and I now get to live in that reality that there has been a great war and Christ is now victorious and you and I actually get to live inside of that. In fact, in a couple of weeks, you'll see as Paul goes on to say, he goes on to say that the cross of Christ was not the great defeat of his life but it's actually the announcement that the war was over, that victory had come, that sin, death, and condemnation has forever been dealt with. Powerful. It's unbelievably powerful. So because of the good news, if you'll skip down to verse 17, look at what it says. This good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. The good news tells us how this makes us right in God's sight. Some of you really need to let that sit in this morning. That you have been made right in God's sight. Because I know there's a whole lot of us that can walk around with this dark cloud over our lives that says, Uh Uh-uh, not good enough. Try harder. You blew it there. Because of that, no. This gospel is the way that Christ has made us right in his sight. It's powerful. There's two terms that I want you to understand that Paul is alluding to. The first term is this. It's called gift righteousness. Um, And so last night, uh, this is the only wrapping paper I had in my house. It's our Christmas wrapping paper. And I think I did a pretty decent job on this. Um, Gift righteousness. What what is that um, that Paul is is alluding to right here? Um, If you have been made right in the sight of Christ, gift righteousness says it's not about you. It is a gift that has been freely given to you. So if this is the righteousness of Christ, gift righteousness looks like, hey, I have a gift for you. This now belongs to you. So who who is the originator of the gift? Who owns the gift? Not Wes, me. It's my gift to give Wes. It is my righteousness that I give to him. This is incredibly important. You have to understand that when God looks you in the eye and he declares you that you are made right in his sight, it's not because Wes is a great guy, which he's an awesome guy, 
but it's because of the righteousness that Christ, not that he ever gives it back, but it's because of the righteousness that Christ gives to him as a gift. It's not that Wes is, has achieved something really awesome, but it's because of the work that Christ has achieved. And he gives you his righteousness. It's powerful. The next thing you, you, I want you to see is this. It's called alien righteousness. That is not uh, little green men righteousness. Alien righteousness means that I have this gift right here, and it is outside of Wes. It does not originate with Wes. It's not his. It it's coming from outside of him. That means alien, foreign to him. Christ gives us his righteousness. It's outside of us. We are not righteous on our own. We get to claim the righteousness of Christ. And so many of you students are in school right now. It's kind of like this. Let's pretend that you go to take your, uh, your math exam, uh, final exam tomorrow. Um, not tomorrow because it's off, but Tuesday. And you go and uh, you, they give you the exam. You sit down, you look at the exam, and you look at the, you, you don't even know how to read the questions. You are that confused with the problems. That, that was much of, my, much of my upbringing in math. It was horrible. So imagine that you're sitting through this exam. You know nothing on it. Hour comes up. You write your name on the exam. You walk it to the front of, uh, of the class to give to the teacher. And as you are handing it in, there's a student behind you, grabs it. He erases your name on your paper, and he writes his name. Then he takes his paper, and he erases his name, and he writes your name. And the swap has been made. And this student has gotten a hundred. He got what you deserved, and you got what was given to him as a free gift. That is alien righteousness, gift righteousness. You get what you don't deserve. It's the, it's the great scandal of the gospel is that apart from me, I'm not that great. So Christ gives me his righteousness, right? The good news then, y'all, please hear this part. The good news is not just that you have been forgiven of your sins because that's great. The good news of the gospel is that when God looks at you, he says that you are made right in his sight. You've been made right in his sight. That you have the righteousness of Christ now. So I've been watching, uh, I just finished this last week, uh, watching the Ted Bundy tapes on, uh, on Netflix. I don't know if you have watched them. It's about this murderer. Uh, he killed, they guesstimate, of about 30 people. And I got kind of hooked and fascinated by watching that story unfold. So what would it look like if right before Ted Bundy um, was sent to the, his execution, the phone call came in and he got a pardon. And not only did this judge pardon him, but the judge declared him innocent. And that the judge not only pardoned him, but took every from every Ivy League school, Harvard, Yale, Abilene Christian, all these Ivy League schools, and he awarded him, why are you laughing? He, he, they awarded him every major honorary doctoral and PhD imaginable. And then the jail doors flung open and the whole town 
gathered and applauded and had a parade for this man. And then you know what happens? He went to the next time. And you know what he received? A hero's welcome. Do you know why? Because not only has he been declared innocent, he has been awarded righteousness. That's the work of the, of the gospel in us. Not that you have just been forgiven of your sins, but that Christ gives you what you did not deserve. He gives you his righteousness. That's why the gospel is so, y'all, it's scandalous. It's almost, it's just ridiculous that you and I, we get what we don't deserve. That is the gospel message. So I can stand up here before you today and I can be fully confident in my relationship with Christ. Do you know why? Not because, listen, the closer you get to me, the less impressed you're going to be. Like if, if you know me, you're going to, we know you, John. Yeah, thanks, Steve. And so, and so uh, the less impressed you're going to be. But do you know how I can stand up here with confidence and speak about the goodness of God? You know why? Because my name is not on the exam. He has written his name on my life. And apart from him, I am not righteous. I don't have what it takes. I'm not good enough. I will never measure up. But he has given me this beautiful gift of his righteousness that says you're adopted and you belong. How is it that I don't melt down when I fail? How is it that I don't crumble when I completely blow it? Because I know the righteousness of Christ lives inside of me and that means the power of the resurrected Lord in time is gonna bring all things under his kingship. It's the power of the gospel, the good news. This king has declared victory. And this victory has led you to be able to say, I am justified. I am righteous before the Lord. And do you know what that does in Paul? This is what it brings up in Paul. Go to that next slide. If you are combing through here, in verse 15 it says, so I am eager to spread the good news. I am under obligation. Do you see that? How he feels a great sense of urgency and he's eager and he feels this great sense of obligation to get this message out. Why is Paul so eager? Because he knows how horrible he used to be. He knows how bad he used to be. And he's experienced the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. And so he is eager to get this out to everybody. Everybody. It says that he is under obligation. Now, most of the time, whenever we think about obligation, is that a positive or negative thing? Negative. Um, you're obligated to pay your rent. You're obligated to make your car payment, obligated to take care of your children. Like all of these things, right, you're obligated to do. Um, not necessarily always a positive thing. And you know why? Because we don't understand what the word obligation means. So imagine this. Every year we partner with World Vision and we run the San Antonio Marathon. World Vision is the number one provider of clean water in the world. For every dollar you give, more of their dollar goes towards direct impact than any place, than any ministry in the world. They are unbelievable at it. So let's imagine this. I sign up to run the marathon again this year, and on my fundraising page, somebody in this community gives me an insane amount of money. They give me $10 million, and they deposit that in my fundraising page for World Vision. Holy cow, best day ever, right? 
imagine what it would look like if I let that money sit in my account for a day. No big deal. What would it look like if I let that money sit in my account for a month? Okay, John, what do you, what's going on? Something going on? Like, hey, what if I let it sit in my account for a year? Or five years? You see, I'm obligated to pass it on. That's, that's the gospel message. That's, that's who Paul is. He's under obligation because he knows how valuable and costly the gospel actually was. And so he's under obligation to not let it just stop with him, but that he's eager to get it out to everybody, right? That's what he, that's what he says. He is under obligation to let it pass through him. And I think that's the beautiful part of the gospel. I hear, I've heard it often said that the gospel is like a tornado. The moment it sucks you in, it spits you right back out. And it's what Jesus says when he says, come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. The gospel sucks you in and spits you out and it makes, we have this great obligation, guys, because we've been given so much. And it costs Jesus everything. And because of that, we are under great obligation to, to, to give what we have been given. It's a power, powerful thing. And so as I was reading and studying for this morning, I came across this really uh, fascinating story I want to share with you. It's a story about, a, about the first Baptist uh, missionary to the people of Burma. And his name was Andoniram, which is awesome, uh, Judson. And he was... Uh, in the early, like, 1800s. Uh, uh, Mr. I'll go by Mr. Judson because his first name's hard. Uh, Mr. Judson, right before he left, fell in love with a girl. And that girl's name was um, Anne Hasseltine. And Anne shared the love for the nations, the love that uh, her fiancé had as well. And they shared their love for doing mission work around the world and taking the gospel to places it had never set foot before. And so Mr. Judson, right before he asked uh, uh, Anne for, uh, to be married, he sent her dad a letter. And we're lucky because that letter was preserved. And I want to read part of it to you this morning. It says this. This is written to Anne's dad. Dear sir, I have now to ask you whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring, to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure to a foreign and dangerous lands, to her subjection to, to every kind of hardship, hardship and suffering of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to every kind of distress, degradation, insult, persecution, and maybe even a violent death. Can you consent to this? Can you consent to all of this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of those perishing, for the lost and for the broken, for the sake of the glory of God. Can you consent to all of this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory? wearing a crown of righteousness, brightly brightened by the acclamation, 
and praise which will resound from her Savior, which will resound from her Savior and the lost nations as a witness of her life. I mean, can you imagine dads of daughters? Some punk <laughs> wants to take my daughter off to some foreign land and I will never see her again and I know that she will greatly suffer for the sake of the gospel. Who signs up for that? Somebody that knows just how valuable and worth it the gospel of Jesus Christ actually is. And it's a question that I think we have to bear and we have to wrestle with. Please hear this, not as an accusation against you, but an invitation. What's the gospel worth to you? Paul understood it, not in an intellectual pursuit, but in a reality that transformed his life from Saul to Paul to the nations to the world because nothing will satisfy like Jesus Christ. And it's a question I have to ask myself is what's the gospel worth to me? What's the gospel worth to you? This is an invitation. Come and see. Come and see. Come and, come and taste and see how good the Lord is. Come and see the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Come and see how he can give you a new name. Come and see that you are declared right in his sight. Come and see that you are righteous because of him. Come and see the power of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ flowing in sin. So what's the gospel worth to you? Friends, this is not an accusation against you, but an invitation to come to get to know God's heart because when you get to know God's heart, nothing satisfies like him. He's worth it all. So brothers and sisters, welcome to the book of Romans. It's going to be a good journey together this year.